ever wonder what your therapist is really thinking? Well, that's confidential. But in this podcast, a few of my therapist friends and me show you what it's really like inside of a mental health professional's brain. Hi, welcome to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified counselor. We discuss books, movies, TV shows, motherhood, current events, clinical issues, mental illness, trauma, and our own personal lives. So if you want to know what we're thinking, come on in, take a listen. Come see what the world is like through the eyes of a therapist, the podcast that destigmatizes mental illness, humanizes therapists, and demystifies therapy. All right, we are back on the podcast, and we have a very special guest today. Their name is Brenda Rich, and I'd like for her to introduce herself. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Brenda Rich. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and my main involvement in all of this is that I'm the founder and the executive director of the Borderland Rainbow Center. And as such, I and my team serve a lot of transgender youth and their families. Yes, very important stuff that we're going to talk about today and the future of transgender youth. And I don't like to say the future of transgender youth. I think they have already been affected so much and are currently being affected right now. But we're going to talk about what the heck is going on in Austin with Governor Greg Abbott and some of the attacks that are being brought on legally. And so I decided to bring in our local expert in El Paso to talk about this here on the podcast today. And just a quick summary for those of you who don't know, we're located in El Paso, Texas. We're kind of in the very far west corner of El Paso, probably the bluest corner of the state. And we are just kind of watching as things travel west over here. But obviously, as anything happens in Austin, it affects all of the state all at once. And so the governor of Texas wants gender-affirming treatment for trans kids to be classified as child abuse. And so the attorney general agrees with that. And apparently there are some other legal things that have happened. There's a timeline that has been going on. And so maybe, Brenda, if you want to tell us a little bit about what has been happening there. Well, I mean, it kind of started a while ago, back on in August, August 23rd of uh, 2021, um, Representative Matt Krause requested an opinion from the Attorney General Ken Paxton, his office, about whether certain types of gender-affirming care could constitute child abuse under Texas law. And at the time, there was, you know, there was a case going between a couple that was um, separated or divorced, and the mother was affirming and supportive of their child, their trans child, and the father was not. And so, That whole case has played out in the media, and you can follow that. But as a result of that inquiry, this kind of stimulated a response from the governor and the attorney general. And so about a week before the Texas primary election on, it was either February 18th or February 21st, I'm not exactly sure, Ken Paxton released a non-binding opinion that expressed his belief that gender-affirming care does constitute child abuse under Texas law. And that same day, the governor, you know, Greg Abbott, wrote this opinion letter to 
the Department of Family and Protective Services, where he asked the agency to conduct a review of reported incidents of abuse and ordered all state agencies to follow the law in accordance with Paxton's opinion. So what that meant was the governor was writing a letter to direct all mandated reporters in our state to report the families uh, who are providing gender-affirming care for their kids as child abusers and investigate those families through DFPS. So obviously, um, that's a gigantic upheaval for a lot of families and also for that department. So I think what happened immediately was a wave of fear and panic throughout Texas families, for Texas families, and also a lot of dismay and upset and confusion on the part of the Department of Family and Protective Services. So I think the most controversial part of all of this, other than the inhumanity being shown by these elected officials, is the fact that both of them decided that they somehow could take the law into their own hands and change the Texas definition of child abuse. Yeah. There's no court in the nation that's ever ruled that gender-affirming care is child abuse. There's no Texas court, no court in any state. And so it's not within the scope of the power of these elected officials to change the law by themselves. Right. And so, right. but however, we all know the social power of the governor and the attorney general um, because of their mm. positions, right? And mm-hmm. so that led countless teachers, coaches, therapists, caseworkers, CPS investigators confused and thinking that they should make these reports and that these reports should be investigated. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. heinous. It's it's a pretty sickening thought, right? Um, that political figures, elected officials that, you know, Texans have decided should lead the state would take the law into their own hands, literally, mm-hmm. and try to direct other people to do things that are actually illegal, according to the opinion of many, many attorneys and legislators in the state. So, you know, as you well know, um, Crystal, you know, making a false report to Child Protective Mm -hmm. Services, to, you know, the Department of Family and Protective Services is an offense, a legal offense in its own right. And so it's illegal to do that. Yeah. Yeah. The governor and the attorney general were asking people to make false reports. Wow. Yeah. If we could just also kind of like backtrack and I feel like people need to know what gender affirming care is so that we can clarify, because I feel like you've said a lot about how the governor has basically like demonized what this is. Right. And it's like people don't even know that this is something that is life saving and very important to trans kids and transgender people. But I have like a short list of things like laser hair removal and hormone replacement therapy and speech therapy and mental health care that you and I provide as therapists, right? So these are things that, as I read them off this list, seem really harmless and things that people who aren't transgender would even seek for themselves, right? To feel good about themselves, to improve their quality of life, and to just live on a day-to-day basis, right? So it's kind of like, why would we constitute that as child abuse? That makes no sense. Well, I think that this entire situation is not based on logic or sense. I think it's based on emotion, opinion, and politics. And Mm -hmm. so the predicating thought behind all of this is that somehow children can't know their gender identity. 
you know, I think folks who are educated as therapists or counselors, or even folks that have just had a great child development or psychology class would understand that children know their own gender often and can express it clearly by the age of three. And that in terms of right. trans, trans youth and non-binary and gender queer youth, often by about age six, they're expressing that they're different than their peers and that what's going on if they're um, transgender, maybe what's going on with the sex they were assigned at birth is not matching up with their actual internal feelings about themselves. And so, you know, when I talk with parents, they talk about their children having said things like, you know, hey, mommy, when are these parts going to drop away and when am I going to get my girl parts? So like Mm -hmm. kids Mm -hmm. often would think at that age that developmentally something's just going to naturally happen that's going to allow their body to develop the way it should be in their mind, right? Um, And that's kind of children's, you know, uh, magical thinking about how physical development works. We can't expect a six-year-old to understand human anatomy and biology, right? Like in a detailed way. So they just think about it from the point of view that makes sense to them. What that shows you is that that's a very persistent and like a deep feeling that what they have isn't right. Like it's their body's not matching who they are. Another time that Mm -hmm. lots of um, folks, young folks realize that they might be different from their peers is at the onset of puberty. And that's another time when you see a lot of children starting to talk with their parents and their peers about, hey, like this sex I was assigned at birth is not fitting or I don't feel like either a girl or a boy what do I do? So I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, the identities as the identities develop, you know, and are expressed, I think it's really about the expression of those identities. There is a group of people who believe that if you're under 18 years old, and especially if you're under 15 or 16, there's no way you could possibly know your own mind and know what, who you are or what sex you are, which that to me, just from having interacted with children as a human being seems pretty far-fetched, right? Right. Right. So I don't think it's actually based on any logic. I think it's based on a bias about parental control and about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, not respecting children's rights because children do have rights. You know, children do have rights over the autonomy of their body. Like, you know, we should be teaching children at an early age that if they don't want someone to touch them, they shouldn't be touched. Right. And things like that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, safety and bodily autonomy are issues for every human being at every age. Right. And that includes being respected for who you are you know, your own sense of who you are. And so, you know, gender affirming care really is primarily for young people under 18 consists of therapy to help clarify what's going on, to help the child communicate with others about what's happening, to um, help the child explore how they want to express themselves, deal with bullying and other social issues that are, that come about due to bias, prejudice, and hatred. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things, right? Help the family adjust to the situation if they weren't prepared for this. That's the main part of what therapy does. It deals with the mental health concerns that a child might develop because society is ugly, um, is hateful, and is biased in response to them at times and in certain places. Yeah, navigating the transition. Yeah. And we all know as mental health folk, right? Like people who are interested in this topic and folks who work in this field, that if you have hatred directed against you or uh, negative stereotypes or bias, that is going to affect how you feel about yourself and how your Mm -hmm. peers interact with you and how you interact with others. So that's where a therapist can be very helpful, right? Yeah. The other thing that happens before a child reaches Tanner stage four of puberty, right? So if you go back to your child development books, you look, 
there's these stages of puberty and they each Mm -hmm. have different markers. So between Tanner stage two and Tanner stage four, that's a window of time when a family could decide that puberty blockers might be of help. And what Mm -hmm. a puberty blocker does is it's a medication that halts puberty. It just stops the clock. And anybody who's worked with kids between nine and 14, you know, puberty starts at different times. Some kids start as early as eight or nine. Some kids it's later. But in that range, two or three years of time to develop is huge. Makes a huge difference. Yeah. Right. So like if you think about the social and emotional capabilities of an eight-year-old versus a 10-year-old or a 10-year-old versus a 12-year-old, that's very valuable time. And puberty blockers can be used with complete safety and no concern as long as the child is medically healthy for about four years. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they have been used for decades for children who exhibit precocious puberty. So the medication we're talking about is nothing new. It's not something that was developed to address transgender children's issues. It's been used by pediatric endocrinologists for a very long time to address other kinds of issues pituitary tumors and stuff like that. Yeah, I've heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the main component of what we're talking about. You know, after about age, I would say, I, you know, I'm not a plastic surgeon, so I can't say for sure, but maybe 16 through 18, 15 through 18, theoretically, a kid could get removal of excess breast tissue. Mm-hmm. You know, so imagine that you come, you're, you're assigned female at birth and you come from a family with a genetic heritage of being very busty, very well endowed up top, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your your body starts to develop and it's incredibly disturbing to you. And you feel like you're out of control. You feel like immense disgust at your body because it doesn't fit who you are. People start to treat you differently. They stare at your chest. They act like you're a sex object. You're not prepared for this. It's not what you want. It's not who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, potentially the child could use a binder, right? With the parent's mm-hmm. help. Um, to get fitted correctly and use that safely. But another option might be plastic surgery. And people are like, oh my gosh, a a kid getting plastic surgery. I'm like, "Uh, excuse me, but look around the world for the last um, four or five decades. And you'll see plenty of people between the age of 14 and 18 who have gotten facial surgeries like nose jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Had eyelid surgeries, have had other kinds of yeah, Mm -hmm. elective plastic surgery, have had breast enhancement, breast reduction. Mm -hmm. So a a colleague of mine who works a lot with children with ADHD said, hey, you know, like some boys who are on Ritalin and other ADHD medication develop excess breast tissue. Well, those Mm -hmm. nobody questions those boys having that tissue removed. So why Mm. would it be a problem if a transgender boy had excess tissue removed? Right, exactly. Right? So, because, you know, a boy who is exhibiting breasts is not a thing that most people are kind about. They can't tolerate it. Peers are not very well behaved. Um, Even teachers and adults can be jerks, just to say it informally. Oh, absolutely. And so that kind of bullying and shaming and distress that the kid is feeling can really cause suicidality, you know, long-term, long-term depression. And and the Mm -hmm. more we know about the biology of mental health, right? Like we certainly don't want to plunge a child into major depression if we can avoid it because we know that's going to make them more likely to have major depression later. Right. Yeah. And continue to relapse in and out of it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So we're we're literally creating 
a mental health problem that that person may face off and on for the rest of their life and have to cope with, right? Because we're not willing to like do what is medically necessary to support their mental health. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're so right about how this is not grounded in logic or sense. Right. And so gender affirming care is really under 18 and really under Tanner stage four or, you know, or Tanner stage two is mostly therapy. And then there's that window for puberty blockers. And then once that window has been passed or it's clear what's happening with the child, then the youth, I should say, because they're youth, they're not children at that point, they're, they're adolescents, right? Um, mm-hmm. Then, you know, a pediatric endocrinologist may prescribe hormone replacement therapy. So just as what they do with other youth who have other issues and how they're developing, right? So, you know, there are different genetic conditions where you might not absorb testosterone or you might not produce enough of the hormones, the sex, um, the sex activating hormones. So hormone replacement therapy for youth is not new either, but this application of it literally is life-saving. So, you know, a colleague on the West Coast, you know, just published a new paper about how having access to gender affirming medical care reduces depression by 60%, 60%. That's wow. a big, big impact. And even yeah. more impressively, it reduced suicidality by 73%. Oh my gosh. And yeah. like, if, if I swear as a mental health professional, anything that reduces suicidality in youth by 73% cannot be called anything, anything other than life-saving. I mean, come on. Yeah. Especially in a population that has such a high suicide risk to start with uh, a suicide exactly. risk that is astronomical compared to their cisgender straight peers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I have a thought as you're talking about all this, I identify as a woman, right? And if I all of a sudden woke up with a penis or something and my breasts were gone, I'd be like, what the f- happened? Right. And I'd be like, cut it off. And I want breasts back and get me on the surgery table, you know? Because that's just not who I am. That's just, I knew and I've known ever since I was, I don't know how old, right? Like four or something, right? But I'm thinking like, I want people who identify as maybe like cis or, you know, thinking about that opposite, right? Like putting yourself in the other person's shoes. What if you all of a sudden woke up as the other gender or something, right? Like, what would you want to do with that? What would happen, right? Like you would want to do something about that. You've always known what would happen, right? And so I just think like children and having worked with children for a really long time, for a big part of my career as a therapist, I think we don't give them enough credit for what they know about themselves. And I think it's kind of like insulting to their intelligence, right? Like part of what this does is that it takes away that like independence and autonomy and everything that our ethical codes as social workers and therapists, um, counselors talk about, right? Like autonomy and doing right by the client and really believing that the client has what they need within themselves to do the best they can. And it's just like, this makes no sense to me. I mean, I, I was going to say, I don't think it makes any sense to anyone who is therapeutically trained and, and understands child development and also who has worked mm-hmm. with children at risk, Right. Like typically Mm -hmm. teachers, therapists, counselors, coaches are not worried about parents who are paying attention to their child and taking their concerns seriously and seeking expert help to address those concerns, right? 
So if a parent's out of their depth and they go to um, doctor or therapist or an endocrinologist to address their child's concern, those are not the parents that mandated reporters are normally worried about. They're worried about parents who aren't attending to their child's needs, who aren't responding Mm -hmm. to medical situations, who are not seeking therapy when their child is having distress because they're being bullied, they feel different, they're having a crisis because the world is telling them they're wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if this, if we looked at this and compared it to other ways that people have been ostracized, um, persecuted, and discriminated against, like, let's say we live in a, a white majority area, and you're a family of color, and your child is in a mostly white school, and they're one of one or two children of color, like they may perceive themselves as somehow wrong if all they see around them are white people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so yeah. I think it would be really awesome if those parents said, Hey, let's get our kids some support so they can understand that this is a situation. It's not the world mm-hmm. just because there's white people around them and that's being held up as the norm. That doesn't mean that that is the norm or that that's correct or somehow should be important to them other than understanding mm-hmm. power. Right. Right. So a family that did that, a family who got, you know, support for their kiddo, if their kiddo was depressed or anxious because they're being told you don't look, um, you're not pretty, you don't look right. You're, why are you different? Why is your skin different? I mean, I've seen this happen in mostly white communities. And if you look at that peril, it's completely obvious that a family that's yeah. looking for support would be doing the right thing. So why is right. this any different when we're talking about transgender or, or even queer youth in general, gay or lesbian or bisexual youth either, right? Like, why would it be any different? And similarly, yeah. you know, I think that when you think about those comparisons and you, you take this situation and you translate it into any other kind of way that people are othered, like let's say a child living with a disability, a visible disability, right? Who mm-hmm. also might be told that they're wrong, they're, they don't fit in, they can't be part of the group, they're not okay, they're not cool. Something's wrong with them, right? It mm-hmm. becomes completely obvious that this is a political situation. There are oh, political yeah. analysts, actually, Crystal, who've compared this development of actions here in Texas to the situation that happened with marriage equality about a decade mm-hmm. ago, right? So if you remember okay. when marriage equality first became an issue, you know, there's a big wave of people for it and there's a lot of people concerned, right? Well, it became a political issue to the point where it was a factor in national elections, right? Mm-hmm. As a way to motivate and pull together a political party that is very splintered among certain economic models, um, uh, religious conservatism, um, anger and fear over change, like a very disparate group of people unifying behind a political party. They had to find whipping boys to put up there. Uh, They had to find some kind of witch hunt to rally their troops, right? And, you know, I think that there's no chance in the fact that of the timing of this letter and opinion by our elected officials in this state. It happened a week before, you know, primaries. I mean, how convenient, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. you know, and then the rest of what, what has gone on to happen is, of course, you know, once something like this is set in motion, then, you know, then the legal teams come into play, right? So immediately, Mm -hmm. I think one of the most disgusting examples that I can think of is that literally an employee of DFPS 
Right. One of their own employees. Right. Was Mm -hmm. accused by other employees there based on the governor's mandate to the governor's letter to, you know, report people, Mm -hmm. parents supporting their children. So this mother was reported for supporting her child and the family was taken to court. So, you know, based on this opinion from Ken Paxton, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that case has led to a judge here in Texas making a statewide temporary injunction to cease all investigations and prosecution of families for providing gender affirming care. And, you know, that's on, that's on the heels of one county and city attorney after another stating publicly in our jurisdiction, we will not allow cases like this to go forward to prosecution, including proudly our own Joanne Bernal here in El Paso County. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she yeah. made a vi- she was very quick to make a public statement. I will not allow cases like this to go forward in the courts. And in fact, the next, you know what the next thing she did was she reached out to the Borderline Rainbow Center, knowing that we have resources and knowledge. And she said, um, Dr. Rish, can you can you brief me on what is gender affirming care? What do we do? Like, I need to understand this. So I talked to her for a few minutes and she said, wow, you know, I've learned so much. Will you train my staff? And I'm like, absolutely. So in less than a week, in a matter of mere days, she had arranged a training for her staff, for the attorneys who work with child welfare cases, and for any judge who wanted to participate, right? And so several of our- Wow, that's good. Several of, yeah, I know. It's wonderful, right? So that education happened immediately. So over 37 of their staff, attorneys, and judges were trained as to what exactly is gender-affirming care, um, why is it medically necessary, what are the precedents, what are the, all, of the, all of the details of that care, what are its risks, what are its benefits, mm-hmm. you know, what does this all mean? And then how can families protect themselves in this kind of hostile environment? So we did that education. And then also, Attorney Bernal also said that she would reach out to our general counsels at our different school districts to let them know that, you know, they should think very carefully about how they advise their staff to proceed. Because, you know, Crystal, you and I both Mm -hmm. know, having worked with kids, that the vast majority of CPS reports come from schools, right? So for Mm -hmm. the teachers listening out there and the coaches and the counselors, the school counselors and the administrators, I just want to say very clearly Ken Paxton and Greg Abbott cannot change the Texas definition of child abuse. Gender affirming care is not child abuse. If you report families for providing gender affirming care, you are making a false CPS report. That is an offense punishable by law. Please refrain from instructing your employees or your colleagues to do this. And please refrain from doing it yourself because all you are doing is creating a backlog of false reports that our Department of Family and Protective Services staff will have to wade through in order to find the real reports of children who are actually being neglected and abused. So if you want to slow down help being given to children in real danger, then make false reports. But that's why I say none of this is based on fact right? None of this is based on common sense or logic or any kind of government efficiency or anything else. Exactly. If there's a political agenda at work regarding the Department of Family and Protective Services, it's about the governor wanting to 
cut that budget again, again, and again in the face of the overwhelming need of children in danger, the difficulty that that department has in staffing their positions and retaining their employees because of the limited budget, um, mm-hmm. and also the privatization of many parts of that government entity that probably should not be privatized. So because right. there are risks when you make a government function, a state function into a private company's discretion, you allow bias to enter the picture much yeah. more easily, much more easily than if the state is oh, performing absolutely. the service, right? And so if you know anything about the history of that department in Texas, over the last 20 years, you've watched things like group homes disappear, you know? So there are very few facilities where children with like serious issues who are older and may not be able to find a family to foster them. There's, there's nowhere for those children to go mm-hmm. because we don't have any facilities, mm-hmm. you know, and the facilities right. that exist are run by private organizations that often have a strong religious bias. So the vast majority of agencies that help find foster parents and adoptive parents are religiously based. And because many of those denominations discriminate against LGBTQ people, that means that the pool of foster and adoptive parents they're collecting is not a pool of people that would be happy to have a little bisexual child in their, fa- in their house or a little transgender boy or girl, Mm -hmm. right? And so Mm -hmm. where are those little gay preteens supposed to go? What's supposed to happen to an eight-year-old in care who realizes they're transgender as the very first stirrings of puberty are just creeping up? And by nine or 10 or 11, they're now feeling desperate as their body is just beginning to develop and hormones are surging Mm -hmm. into their bloodstream. Right. And the shame is erupting and the terror and the disgust and the distress. And those children are already extremely high risk for suicidality and depression and many other difficulties because of what they've been through that led them to be in care. And now they have an extra burden. So, you know, the Borderline Rainbow Center has pre-COVID, we were active in engaging with um, Child Protective Services to have um, seminars to in, introduce the agency to pools of LGBTQ people who might want to foster and adopt because we needed oh. to build that bridge, that relationship, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Our local agency understands that LGBTQ people can be wonderful parents, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, they would be ideal parents for children who would be rejected by these other options, these other candidates, yeah. right? So we did that work and we're, we can't wait to start back doing that work to invite, you know, LGBTQ people out there who have the dream of being a parent to participate by fostering or adopting a child who desperately needs a home. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, a child doesn't have to be LGBT to have a great experience, you know, with LGBT parents, right? I think there's a lot of straight cisgender kids out there that would be so happy to have parents just have people who love them. And are going to care for them and going to have oh, their best absolutely. interests at heart, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't think there's a person alive who's interested in mental health who would believe that it's better for a child not to have parents. Oh, gosh. Right? Like, right. So, yeah. So, so this political issue is connected <laughs> mm-hmm. to a lot of agendas, right? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about it today because I want people to see how, and it's so cool that you're trained in social work as well, because when you talk to a social worker, folks, (laughs) this is how their brains work, right? Like all the systems that are at play are talked about, right? It's not just, oh, it's like this political thing or, oh, it's because this guy is like a villain or, oh, because, you know, just the youth. It's like everything is connected. It's like a spider web, right? And like you have to talk about all the parts, all the moving parts and how they're all interconnected. They have play on each other. It's really important to understand all the pieces. Tune in in two weeks from now for the rest of this episode where I continue my conversation with Brenda Risch and what's going on with trans kids in Texas and CPS reporting. For now, if you want to make meaningful difference in the lives of trans kids in Texas, specifically in our border city of El Paso, visit www.borderlandrainbow.org. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And please connect with me, Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, on Instagram at Through the Eyes of a Therapist Pod. More information about booking me for therapy or training can be found there. Until next time, keep on fighting the stigma and go to therapy. I'll see you next time. <laughs>